We return this morning, if you have your Bibles, uh, grab them. We return this morning to the book of Acts. I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a copy, there's uh, the passage for this morning printed in your bulletin as normal. Last week, uh, Pastor Ed referred to something in the tail end of the book of Acts, this book that we've been studying, and he, he said, uh, joking, that he wasn't sure if and when we would get there. And to be honest, I'm not sure if and when we're going to get to the end of Acts either. And uh, that may not be comforting or encouraging to you, but it's, it's the fact of the matter. Uh, the book of Acts, though, is a book that's worth studying. It's worth working our way through. Um, I do know for a fact that we're going to take a break from Acts come December, uh, because that's always a time to focus on the Advent uh, on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And so I want to focus our thoughts and affections there uh, as, we approach, uh, as we approach the celebration of, of Christmas. So we will take a break in December. Whether we go back right to it in January, I'm not sure. But today we're back in it, and for a couple weeks anyway. Uh, so turn in your Bibles to chapter 6. Chapter 6, as we continue this first century history of the Church of Jesus Christ, a history book that I don't know about you. I'm not super love. I'm not a super lover of history, uh, but uh, this has not been a dry history book. Uh, at least not in the first five chapters. I mean, we've had we've had people speaking in languages that are not their own. We've had supernatural healing. Some even maybe by the shadow of an individual, the shadow of Peter. We've had bold defiance of the law of the land. We love that, right? Guys, bold defiance. We have a a jailbreak. Uh, We're going to have a better one down the road in the book of Acts, but this one was pretty good. And as a result of all of these things, all of these things in this book, what's happening? This movement, this people, these followers of Jesus Christ are just gathering steam. They're growing, and they're growing, and they're growing. So we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at just the first six verses, excuse me, seven verses this morning. Listen as I read. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we're going to talk a little bit about growing pains. Growing pains. And no, it's not 
the 80s series that is forever burned and embedded in the minds of some children of the 80s here this morning. Show me that smile again. (laughs) No, I want to talk this morning about the kind of pain in growing that we all experience at some level. I'm not sure about your uh, childhood, but I remember a lot of growing pains. When I say I remember a lot of growing pains, I'm actually talking about physical growing pains. The summer after my freshman year of high school, I grew and I grew and I grew some more. And my muscles struggled to keep up with my bone growth and my legs would ache. My legs would ache at night and many of us have the recent experience of of our kids and rubbing their sore legs at night because they are growing and it's painful. Growing pains hurt, but they are necessary for our growth. Physically, it's just an internal challenge that our bodies amazingly in God's design just deal with and, and handle. But of course, it's not just physically that we experience growing pains. We experience growing pains in all sorts of areas. We experience them emotionally. We experience them relationally. We experience them professionally. They're part of our spiritual journeys. As God allows sin in our lives and the sin around us to shape us and to mold us for His purposes. We all have to acknowledge that even if we don't like it or enjoy it. You see, spiritual growing pains is where we find the early church this morning. It is a corporate, it's an organizational pain, we might say. I mean, here's this new movement of followers of Jesus called the life, and later they'll be called the way, or they're called the church. And this young movement of followers of Jesus, they're, they're beginning to take shape and still trying to figure out what they are. Now, God's people have been around for generations. That's nothing new. But it's been a nation for the most part. It's been a people that have been ethnically bound. It's been a people that have been ruled and reigned by God directly, a theocracy, we might call them. But now things are changing, right? Things are changing because God is building something new. He's building something different, something that boldly crosses ethnic lines and geographic boundaries. And so challenges are coming up. Growing pains still lie ahead. And for this, uh, this organism, we might call it, which is also an organization, made up of broken people, of of sinners, prone to selfishness, prone to misunderstanding, and all the rest. These are the challenges that they are going to face. And so as we think about this story, as we think about these first seven verses of Acts chapter 6, I want us to see two things from this account. Two truths that guide us this morning as we walk through what the Lord is trying to teach us. And the first thing is this. God grows His church through diversity. God grows His church through 
diversity. See, Luke's purpose, Luke's whole purpose in giving us the book of Acts, as we spoke about two weeks ago, is, is to impart, document for us this phenomenal growth that is taking place among the followers of Jesus. Luke loves these, these markers of growth. They're throughout the book of Acts. We've seen a bunch of them already. Luke, or excuse me, Acts 2.41, they received the word and 3,000 souls were added. 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day. Four, chapter 4, verse 4, many who heard the word believed and the number of the men was 5,000. Chapter 5, verse 14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes. And now again in verse 1 of chapter 6, the disciples were increasing in number. See, the Holy Spirit guided Luke to document these numbers, to make these markers throughout this early history of the Christian church. They are for our benefit. Therefore, our encouragement, as is the message of this account that we find this morning. And that statement that I want us to kind of hang our thoughts on as we walk through this passage, at least first of all, that statement that God grows His church through diversity is actually a, it's a play on words because the first thing I want us to see is that though diversity is a challenge, the church is growing through it. What I mean by that is diversity, the church is growing in spite of diversity. It's advancing past the obstacle. And that's really what's at the center of the passage this morning in Acts chapter 6, is, is an obstacle to growth. There's a conflict. There's a conflict. A complaint between two different groups of believers in the early church. Now, at this time in the church, <clears throat> following Pentecost, we don't know exactly how much time has gone by, but the church of Jesus is pretty much centered geographically in Jerusalem. Now, there may have been some who left and went back, having come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and they left and they returned to their homes around the empire, but pretty much the church is centered in Jerusalem. And yet Jesus has made it very clear in his instructions to his disciples that he doesn't want them to stay there, that he wants them to ripple out into the world, to the ends of the earth, in fact, he says. And we're going to get there The Lord's going to get them there. He's going to prod them there. But it's not happening too much yet. And so in Jerusalem, we have primarily one people. But we have two distinct groups in that one people. We have the Palestinian Jews. Those who have remained in Palestine... And therefore, they speak Aramaic, or they speak Hebrew. These are the ones that are, that are called Hebrews in our passage, the Palestinian Jews. And then we have the Hellenist Jews, called the Hellenists in our passage. These were Jews who had scattered out throughout the empire, likely people who had come back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, ended up staying in Jerusalem because they love what's happening here, and they've been changed, and they've been converted. But they come from outlying parts of the empire. And therefore, they don't speak Hebrew and Aramaic so well. They speak primarily Greek. And their culture is not Palestinian culture. It's more Greek culture, as exhibited in the outlying parts of the empire. 
And so these two groups, though they're ethnically one group, they're all Jews, they're culturally and they're linguistically very different. And we know, we know from experience that that is a natural recipe for conflict. How is the early church going to deal with it? The issue came primarily around the care for widows. And widows have been a segment of society. They are a segment of society that has always been on God's heart. Deuteronomy 10.18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. God's passion for the sojourner, God's passion for the widow was to be reflected in his people in Old Testament Israel as well as this new entity, this New Testament church that God is gathering here in Jerusalem. And James is going to remind the church later in the history of the church in James 1.27, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So these are Jews. They know that care for widows is at the heart of what God's about. And so they are intentional. And they create some kind of a daily distribution. We don't know much about it, but it's some kind of organized daily distribution for the needs of the widows. And this is crucial in a first century context where you don't have life insurance policies, where you don't have the state that comes behind often those who have lost a loved one, who have lost a spouse, and allows them the resources to continue on. No, the church had to be there for the widows, and they were there. So that's a good thing. They're there, but now there's a conflict. There's a misunderstanding at best. There's a neglect going on. And it seems to be from what we read in Acts chapter 6, there's a neglect occurring from the Hebrew Jews... Right? Those who kind of, this is our territory, this is our turf. There's a neglect from those Jews against the Greek Jews, the Hellenists. Those who are out of towners, so to speak. Now, the, the Bible doesn't tell us, and, and Luke doesn't tell us, he doesn't need to tell us, whether this was intentional. Could it have been? Well, it surely could have been, right? These are broken people. It could have been intentionally discriminatory. No, we're going to take care of our own here in Palestine. Or it may have been unintentional. I mean, there were some barriers. There were some wires that were crossed, linguistically and otherwise. We don't know exactly, but we can't read in and say that it's one or the other. Whatever the reason or motive, this was happening and it wasn't good. The disciples acknowledge that it wasn't good, that this rapid growth, this diverse makeup and the needs that it presents, they threaten the mission of the church. I mean, it's as simple as that. This conflict has the ability to threaten the mission of the church. And what is the mission of the church? To preach and teach the Word of God, but also to be the hands and the feet of Christ in a broken world. And the disciples, rightly so, were unwilling to give either one of these things up. And so we've got to figure out how to accomplish both of these things at the same time. 
Now let me pause right there and bring you back to a sermon that, that I preached a couple weeks ago where we focused on the fact that in the early church, particularly, but in our church as well, that the evil one is always looking for opportunities to gain a foothold, to disrupt, to disrail, to destroy. He's already used some pretty straightforward tactics. Intimidation, we talked about that. Persecution, the disciples were beat. Internal deceit, right? The story of Ananias and and Sapphira. And now this, a ripe opportunity for discord. An opportunity for distraction. Ah, distraction. We've talked about distraction before. We've talked about the challenge of our culture in regards to how distracting it can be. Just this past week, one of my homeschool kids, who will remain nameless, was frustrated because they couldn't listen to music while they did their math homework. And I said, no, you can't do that. You need to focus. You'll be distracted by the words in the songs that you're listening to. Music's a good thing. We love music in our house. But at that point, it's an unwanted thing. And as the disciples looked at this situation, caring for the widows is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. But in terms of their ministry, it's an unwanted thing. And it needs to find a solution. And so the apostles wisely recognize that they, they just can't do it all and they shouldn't do it all. Their focus needs to be on the Word. Their focus needs to be on prayer. And so they come up with an administrative decision in this organization that advances both priorities. God grows His church through diversity and the challenges that it creates. And one of the things that's interesting about the seven, as they're often called, is note, note the qualifications for these men to take care of what seems to be an administrative function, a daily distribution of goods, Successful businessmen, proven money managers, proven administrators. No. Men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. In other words, men of spiritual maturity and men of character. Now, many of you who have been in the church know that this is thought to be the, the kind of the beginnings of the diaconate of the office in our church that we have, of deacons. These are a little different than the diaconate, I think. A little unique, and we're going to talk about their uniqueness even next week as we talk about kind of the leader of the pack, Stephen. They're a little unique, but they at least get us thinking about the fact that we're not all called to the same thing. So this isn't a... This isn't a passage, this isn't a sermon that's for deacons. We've got two of them in this room. It's not just for those guys. It's not just for potential deacons. This is actually something for all of us. 
This passage hits us as a church, and it hits me, to be honest, it hits me first of all, right between the eyes. And I'll tell you how it's hit me as I've thought about this, as I've studied this passage. It reminds me that I have to fight the temptation to be a ministry renaissance man. A ministry renaissance man. A renaissance man, that person who can do it all, whose expertise covers a wide range of of knowledge and ability. See, at times, there can be a pressure to be this kind of pastor, to be involved in everything, to be doing everything. But all the guys who end up trying to do that become good at a lot of stuff and a master of nothing. And that's the problem. And the problem of the early church and the way they go about solving it, they, it centers me again on the calling and the privilege that I have. Now, I'm not an apostle. I'm not an apostle, but what is happening here to those who are proclaiming God's word is analogous as their ministry carries on through the early church all the way to the office of a pastor, to the office of prayer and the ministry of the word. And this is harder than you think. Because everything in my life, every demand in ministry presents itself, at least presents itself, as more urgent and more important than being in prayer and studying God's Word. Andrew Bonar, who was a 19th century Scottish pastor, wrote once in his diary, I read this this week, he writes, Today I passed six hours in prayer and scripture reading, confessing sin and seeking blessing for myself and the parish. You see, this is a spiritual work. My work is a spiritual work, and the Word of God is at the center. And I need His Spirit, and I need to be growing in this Word, and I need to be in prayer and on my knees. That is my priority above and beyond everything else, and I need your help in that. I need your prayers to that end. And that doesn't mean, don't hear me like, oh gosh, I'm not going to call Nate, he might be praying. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying I am one who's easily prone to distraction. But this, this also pertains to you. This passage has to do with you. Because the statement, God grows His church through diversity, means not just in spite of diversity, through the obstacle of diversity, but it also means because of diversity. What I mean by that is that the diversity in this room is what gives this church its strength. Ascension Presbyterian is a God-ordained compilation of unique gifts for our mission in this time and in this place. And this passage is not just about deacons. This passage is about servants. It's about those who serve the church. It's about those who contribute to its needs, who facilitate its growth, who seek to improve its health. And so you think there's a hole somewhere in advancing our mission as a church? The first question I want you to ask yourself is, can I fill it? Can I fill that hole? It may be, it may not be the administration of a program like we see here, but maybe it is. 
Maybe it's the creation of something we don't have, but something that we should have. This passage reminds us all that Nate and the elders, this is not their church. They shouldn't be doing it all. This is a passage about our community. This is a passage about what's needed to grow and to serve because God grows His church through our diversity. And they say something like, healthy church, I mean, who, who makes these statistics and how they get them, I don't know, but they say something like, a healthy church has at least 60% of the congregation actively engaged in service. That seems woefully inadequate to me. I think we've got that, but I want to see more. I want to see 100%. That's the first thing I want us to see. And the second thing, and this is something that really has nothing to do with you. This is something where you just sit back and say, wow, God is at work. Because the second truth that I want us to see is this. God's plan for the church is the nations. God's plan for the church is the nations. How fitting we go here as we're going to gather tonight, some of us, to pray for the nations, to pray for those whom God is calling, those whom God is allowing to experience pain and persecution for the sake of Christ. We've already seen in the first couple chapters of this book of Acts that the gospel has exploded. There's no other word for it. It has exploded onto the scene. It's growing exponentially. But what Luke reminds us here in the beginning of chapter 6 is that not just is the gospel exploded, but the gospel is getting ready to invade. Oh, I love that. The gospel is getting ready to invade. As I said before, it's going to take some prodding. It's going to take some persecution, which we're going to get to next week. But God's heart is clearly and has always clearly been for the nations. And so Acts 6 verses 1 through 7 remind us that the church is headed for Gentile territory. Let me, let me show you how, this, how we see this. What's interesting about this passage, one of the things that's interesting is that these men are named. With the exception of Stephen, who we'll talk about next week, and Philip, who will come again, who will come up again in Acts chapter 8, we pretty much don't hear from the rest of them. So why are they named? Well, they're named because they're not usual Jewish type names. Now, these are unusual Greek names gives us an indication that these men who have, cho- who have been chosen, they're Hellenists. They're Greek Jews. Now, why is that significant? Well, I think it's significant for at least two reasons. One, it shows us the wisdom of the apostles. Right? The Hellenists are the ones being slighted. And so you don't make a panel of Palestinian Jews to handle their issue. No, you, you make a panel of, or you make a team, a seven of Greek Jews of their own people who will care and help bridge the gap and help bridge the confusion that is going on. But I think even more significant than that, these men, and particularly Stephen, who kind of is the tip of the spear, and we're going to see that if we were just to continue on in the book of Acts, we read all about his story in the next chapter, in the next two chapters. 
What we see here from these men is that this is a shadow. This is a glimpse that the gospel is headed to the nations. Because Stephen, in a sense, is the new Joshua. Remember Joshua? Remember Joshua from Old Testament fame who led God's people into the conquest of Gentile lands to take the land of promise? Stephen was a man chosen. Numbers 27.16, Moses says, let the Lord appoint a man. Stephen was a man filled with the Spirit. Numbers 27.18, the Lord says to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. These men were commissioned by the laying on of hands. Numbers 27.23, Moses laid his hands on him and commissioned him. Not only that, but Nicholas Nicholas, this proselyte, what does that mean? That means he was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism and now has become a Christian. So he converted to Judaism as a Gentile, but now he's become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And he is from Antioch, where the first Gentile church will be planted, and the place from which Paul will launch his missionary journeys. You see, Luke is is painting this picture. He's showing us what is to come. The Gospel is getting ready to invade. God's plan is for the nations. And this team of seven, seven being the number of completeness, by the way, this team of seven is the tip of the spear in the new conquest as new challenges of Jew and Gentile are bound to present themselves and do present themselves in the New Testament. But this was a reminder to the Jews of that day. It was a reminder to us that God's plan is for the nations. Marvel at what God is doing. Marvel at what God has done. And marvel at what God is continuing to do. I was reading a book this week called The New Shape of World Christianity. Fascinating history book by the historian Mark Knoll. And he says some really neat stuff about what's happening in the world in terms of this faith that is just in seed form here. But now we enjoy with brothers and sisters around the world Let me just read a couple things to you. He says, This past Sunday, it is possible that more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe. This past Sunday, more Anglicans attended church in each of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda than did Anglicans in Britain and Canada and Episcopalians in the United States combined. This past Sunday, more Presbyterians were at church in Ghana than in Scotland. And more were in congregations of the Uniting Presbyterian Church of South Africa than in the United States. And I'll end with this one. This past Sunday, more people attended the Yoido Full Gospel Church pastored by Yonggi Choi in Seoul, South Korea, then attended all the churches in significant American denominations like the Christian Reformed Church, the Evangelical Covenant Church, or the Presbyterian Church in America. 
amazing statistics of what God is doing in the world. God's heart is for the nations. And it's happening now more than it has ever happened in the history of our world. Growing pains are hard to experience. They're evidence, though, that God is at work. Ascension Presbyterian has had its fair share of growing pains. I'm sure we'll have some more. But this is God's way. And so what's the message? Get on board. Get your head in the game, Pastor Ed, right? Get your head in the game. Serve those around you with whatever you have. That His name, that His fame might continue its invasion until He returns. What a great passage. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Word this morning. Thank You for the reminder of what You're doing in and through us. What You have done in and through those who have gone before us. Give us confidence in the church. An entity that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Father, help us, give us wisdom to see where we fit, both as individuals as well as a congregation, in your work in calling the nations to yourself. Father, do in us that which is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.